Last month I was extremely privileged to join with a panel of six esteemed historians in a meeting with His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales in Belfast City Hall. The location was significant because almost exactly 100 years previous, King George V, Charles's great-grandfather, visited Belfast to open Northern Ireland's first parliament in the same building. Charles was acutely aware of his great-grandfather's contribution and invited historians to comment on the impact made by King George's speech in the context of island-wide violence and tumultuous Irish politics. The event will be commemorated by Belfast City Council on Tuesday the 22nd of June when a recreation of the speech will be made for a live stream. There will also be an unveiling of two chairs used on that day by King George V and Queen Mary which have since undergone some specialist conservation work. A talk on the matter will also be provided by the brilliant Dr Eamon Phoenix and finally a performance of a specially commissioned play by Terra Nova Productions which will explore the speech in more dramatic detail. Had I been aware of all of this before I started researching this episode, I probably wouldn't have written it. But nevertheless, I'm here now, and so are you. So here it is, episode 16, The King's Speech. From as early as 1911, elements within the British government privately admitted that if Irish home rule were to be pursued for a third time, Ulster's exclusion would need to be seriously considered. Thus, the first steps on the road to partition were trodden by David Lloyd George and Winston Churchill, who, at a cabinet meeting on the 6th of February 1912, formally proposed Ulster's exclusion from the very legislation that they were drafting. The British cabinet, however, rejected their proposal, and two days later, Churchill, as we've heard on a previous episode, visited Belfast to set out the government's vision for home rule in Ireland, during which he made no mention of Ulster's exclusion. The failure of the British government to grasp the Ulster problem at this early stage created a vacuum for an emboldened unionist campaign of opposition to home rule, one that was defined by street politics and the threat of violence. In this context, the introduction of the third Home Rule Bill to Parliament in April 1912 created an almost inevitable path to partition a decade later. With every passing event in this decade, from the signing of the Ulster Covenant in 1912 to the Easter Rebellion and the sacrifice on the Somme in 1916, the likelihood of a Northern Parliament loomed increasingly large. Consequently, a committee under the chairmanship of Irish Unionist leader Walter Long was tasked with advising the government on how it should move forward on the Irish question. The Long Committee recommended a new Home Rule Bill providing two Home Rule Parliaments for Northern and Southern Ireland. The prospect of partition in Ireland had become a reality, and the government moved quickly to introduce the Government of Ireland Bill, or the Fourth Home Rule Bill, in February 1920, the legislative passage of which was made all the smoother by the abstentionist policy of Sinn Féin's Westminster MPs. The bill was somewhat difficult for the Ulster Unionist Council to accept at first. In particular, its delegates from Cavan, Donegal and Monaghan understandably argued for a nine-county northern state in which they could be accommodated. Amongst other reasons, they considered it unwise for the new state to have too great a majority over nationalists. Ultimately, though, the Ulster Unionist Council disagreed. 
and the six-county state became the preferred option, leaving Sir James Strong, the County Armagh landowner, to complain that the three counties had been thrown to the wolves with very little compunction. The two-parliament solution was only reluctantly accepted by the Ulster Unionist Council as a, quote, final settlement and supreme sacrifice in the interests of peace. A devolved parliament in Belfast was something that they had not asked for, nor had they campaigned for. Edward Carson, for example, the Dublin-born leader of the Unionist Party, said that you cannot knock parliaments up and down as you do a ball, and once you've planted them there, you cannot get rid of them. Carson will later bow out of his leadership position, having failed to prevent the one thing that he was tasked to destroy, Home Rule for Ireland. Nationalists of every shade were, of course, hostile to the idea of a partitioned island, despite the fact that the passage of the same legislation would bring a measure of Irish independence for the South. Sinn Féin rejected it as a partition act, preferring instead to use its energies in making the doll the recognised parliament of a 32-county Irish republic. Joseph Devlin of the Irish Parliamentary Party condemned partition as likely to plunge, quote, this fur and fertile island into irretrievable chaos, a mass of blackened ruins and bleaching bones. Nonetheless, within six months, the new Northern Ireland state held its first election and installed Carson's successor, James Craig, as its first Prime Minister. In an 89% poll, there were 40 Unionists, 6 Sinn Féin and 6 Irish Parliamentary Party returned. The 6 Sinn Féin MPs included well-known names such as Michael Collins, Eamon de Valera and Arthur Griffith, who refused to take their seats in the Northern Ireland Parliament, as did the Irish Parliamentary Party. During the preliminary session of the new devolved Parliament on the 7th of June 1921, which took place in Union Theological College, James Craig became the Prime Minister. A Speaker was elected, and it was also agreed with the full support of the British Cabinet that King George V would visit Belfast and formally open its first session two weeks later. These early sittings took place in the context of renewed and vicious rioting in Belfast, in which seven people had died just ten days before the visit. Indeed, Buckingham Palace had received many letters begging their majesties not to make the visit. For the king, this would not be a straightforward engagement, yet it was one that he would have to get absolutely right, or risk inflaming an already volatile situation in Ireland. On one hand, he was being advised to extend an olive branch to Sinn Féin in the hope that it might have a positive impact on the IRA's devastating campaign in the South. On the other hand, James Craig had hoped that the King might use this opportunity to express solidarity with his loyal subjects in Ulster. Craig even went to the trouble of drafting a speech which is said to have caused the King great distress and left him feeling that he was, quote, being made the mouthpiece of Ulster. The fact that the King had broken from precedent to make this visit in such trying circumstances, I think, is perhaps evidence enough of his acknowledgement of the loyal subjects in Ulster. However, it would not have been desirable for any speech to reinforce this and risk the further alienation of the Catholic nationalist population. In the end, following input from a handful of contributors, including the South African Prime Minister Jan Smuts, a friend of Ireland, an entirely new text was drafted by Edward Grigg, who was David Lloyd George's private secretary, and the King gave his approval to its contents. 
The King's speech was therefore a carefully constructed message from Downing Street to be delivered in person by the Sovereign. In this case, a more reliable messenger than the duplicitous David Lloyd George. For Unionism, the royal visit was an opportunity to demonstrate that despite the devolution of power to the new parliaments in Belfast and Dublin, that the link to the British Crown and the Empire remained as strong as ever. It was an event that provided great comfort to the Unionist people who had finally achieved some form of self-determination despite the passage of Home Rule. In Belfast, Unionists turned the day into a loyal celebration. Lady Craig observed how even the little side streets of areas like the Shankill and Ballymacarrat were draped with bunting and flags, while pavements and lampposts were painted red, white and blue for the occasion. Imagine, she pondered, radicals in England thinking that they would ever succeed in driving people like that out of the British Empire. For nationalists, though, the prospect of a royal visit added insult to their injury. The previous week had witnessed 150 Catholic families flee from their Belfast homes during sectarian violence. And now, with the city decorated in Union flags and bunting to welcome the King, the Irish News commented that Belfast was now a beflagged city, as well as a besmirched one. As such, Irish Parliamentary Party and Sinn Féin representatives maintained their pledge not to enter the Northern Ireland Parliament, while the Roman Catholic Cardinal Michael Logue also rejected an invitation to attend City Hall. The Royal Yacht Victoria and Albert sailed into Belfast Lock on the morning of Wednesday the 22nd of June, accompanied by battleships, cruisers and flotilla. There were 14 vessels in total, and this was in stark contrast to the British warships which had prowled the Irish Sea with intent to engage Ulster in 1914, or indeed the HMS Helga which had shelled the British city of Dublin during the rebellion of 1916. Nonetheless, King George and Queen Mary disembarked at Donegal Quay at 11.30am to the sound of the Royal Irish Constabulary Band playing the national anthem before a royal salute of 21 guns was fired by the Royal Field Artillery. From early morning, the streets of Belfast were filled with people using every possible vantage point in the hope that they could catch a glimpse of the royal procession. One business attempted to cash in on the situation by advertising the sale of trench periscopes from the First World War at a reasonable price. Some of those that couldn't secure a suitable position in the city centre made their way to Bellevue in order to observe the Royal Yacht and its escorts slipping into Belfast Lock. Large numbers, some carrying Union Jacks, gathered at vantage points along the Antrim Road, such as Waterloo Road, Grays Lane and Serpentine Road, where there was an unobstructed view of the loch. Buildings were decorated for the occasion, including Clifton Street Orange Hall, which was festooned with Union flags and bunting, as was the Soldiers' Home uh, on Clifton Street and the Water Offices on Royal Avenue. The colourful route was also protected by 1200 B specials, soldiers and policemen, as well as detectives, some of whom were drafted in from Great Britain, especially for the event. Upon arriving at Belfast City Hall, their majesties were met by James Craig, and one wonders what must have been going through his mind on that particular day in 1921, just 10 years earlier, 
he and Edward Carson had committed themselves to defeating Home Rule for Ireland and now here he was presiding over a new Northern Parliament which was about to receive the seal of approval from the King himself. At around 12.30pm, the King and Queen were escorted to their thrones in the City Hall before Blackrod, Sir Frederick Moneypenny, summoned the House of Commons. After prayers, which were conducted only by Protestant church leaders because Cardinal Logue was not in attendance, a copy of a speech was handed to the King which he stood to deliver. He began, Members of the Senate and of the House of Commons, for all who love Ireland, as I do with all my heart, this is a profoundly moving occasion in Irish history. The theme of Ireland in the context of the British Empire is one that ran through this speech from beginning to end. I have come in person, said the King, as head of the Empire, to inaugurate this Parliament on Irish soil. This is a great and critical occasion in the history of the six counties, but not for the six counties alone, for everything which interests them touches Ireland, and everything which touches Ireland finds an echo in the remotest parts of the Empire. The King spoke of his hope that this would go some way towards resolving the age-old Irish question and his confidence that the Northern Parliament would conduct itself with the same patriotic devotion which the people of Ulster had demonstrated during the First World War. My hope is broader still, he said. I pray that my coming to Ireland today might prove to be the first step towards the end of strife amongst her people, whatever their race or creed. In that hope, I appeal to all Irishmen to pause, to stretch out the hand of forbearance and conciliation, to forgive and forget, and to join in making for the land they love a new era of peace, contentment and goodwill. The King finished by reminding those present that Ireland's future was in their own hands. May this historic gathering be the prelude of the day in which the Irish people, north and south, under one parliament or two, as those parliaments may themselves decide, shall work together in common love for Ireland, upon the sure foundation of mutual justice and respect. At the conclusion of the reading of the speech, a royal salute of 21 guns was fired by His Majesty's ships forming the Royal Escort and by the Royal Field artillery. George V had delivered a statesmanlike speech, one of goodwill despite the distinct lack of goodwill in Ireland at the time. It might also be described as a peace processing speech in which he issued a plea for reconciliation in Ireland, the first of many such speeches which has been made through the hundred years of this state's existence. That the royal visit passed off without any major incident was a huge relief to those who were involved in its logistics. At the docks, and just before boarding the royal yacht, the King had a final few words for James Craig. I can't tell you how glad I am I came, but you know, my entourage were very much against it. To which James Craig replied, Sir, you're surrounded by pessimists. We're all optimists over here. The King's pessimism was, it would seem, somewhat well placed when two days later the IRA blew up a train carrying 113 men, over a hundred horses and four officers of the King's mounted escort, the 10th Royal Hussars. With the excitement of the King's visit still fresh in their minds, the escort had boarded a train in Belfast for Dublin on the 24th of June. However, 
an IRA unit under Frank Aiken, lay in ambush near Adavoil Station, south of Newry. According to one account, Aiken's unit placed a mine which exploded under the guard's van rather than beneath the passenger carriages as intended. In the derailment that followed, at about 10.30am, the luggage van and approximately a dozen cattle wagons crashed down the embankment, which was about 18 feet high. A railway guard and three soldiers perished, along with 50 horses. The incident became known as the Aid of Oil Ambush. Charles Dyson from Leeds, who had been manning a Hotchkiss gun, was killed along with Trooper Carl Harper. The body of Frank Gallagher, the railway guard from Colin Park Street in Belfast, was found pinned under one of the trucks. Private William Henry Telford from Middlesbrough died on his way to the hospital. Immediately after the derailment, a patrol of hussars was organised along both sides of the railway line. Patrick McAteer, a local farm labourer, was challenged about half a mile from the ambush site. He apparently failed to halt and was shot. He died in hospital at 11pm. The Edifoyle ambush is a reminder that the royal visit did not lead immediately to a truce between the IRA and the British. There was still over two weeks of violence to endure before the truce was agreed. Ultimately though, the royal visit and the king's speech in particular did have a positive effect. These were the first meaningful steps towards the truce on the 9th of July, followed by Sinn Féin attending Downing Street for talks that would eventually lead to the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty on the 6th of December 1921. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode 16 now of the Historical Belfast podcast. Don't forget to share the episodes that you're listening to and if you get an opportunity, please do review them. It makes a big difference uh, to the podcast ratings. And also give us a shout on Instagram if you're you're enjoying what you're listening to. I'll be back next month in July uh, with some more tales of Belfast's history.